to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news, politics and culture from a socialist perspective. This week, we're joined by Paul Murphy, TD, to discuss Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the resulting refugee crisis and the threat of this escalating into an all-out inter-imperialist war between the US-backed NATO and, and Russia. But first, I just wanted to say, like, I, I don't know about all of you listening, um, but I think that for many, this last week has been a very tough one emotionally. Um, obviously, first and foremost, our thoughts go out to those in Ukraine. Um, I do know we have had listeners to Rupture Radio there in the past. So if you are hearing this, please do know we, we stand with you. Um, I cannot imagine what it must be like uh, to be there. Um, but even just seeing these horrific scenes of war, hearing about the tragic deaths daily in the news is upsetting, I find. Um, it was similar scenes as these from Iraq in 2003 that really like changed my life, seeing people dying in the name of power and profit, um, seeing that there was, or feeling that there's just no justice in the world, feeling powerless uh, to do anything to stop it. Um, honestly, it was a scaring experience for me. And then it, it spurred me into activism and to fighting for a better world. And I imagine these scenes um, will have a similar effect, uh, um, but also could similarly plunge people into just pure despair and depression. And I think we have had two years of of trauma and fear and uncertainty with COVID. Um, it regularly felt like the world was falling apart, like we were living through some sort of hellish film. Um, and it feels to me like just as there was some sort of like light at the end of the tunnel, just as there was some sort of hope, just as you started making plans again for the future, there's another metaphorical earthquake, another potential apocalypse. Um, and it's just depressing and tough time. So basically, take care. Uh, uh, do listen to this podcast. Do read up on what's going on. Do join the anti-war movement and get involved. Um, but also do take care. Uh, the, the fight against war, imperialism, climate destruction and capitalism uh, does involve sprints and superhuman efforts at times. But it is also a marathon. So, so, so pace yourself. Uh, um, but anyway. Okay, so... After my uh, blind boy-esque uh, ramble, uh, uh, I'd like to welcome Paul. Paul Murphy, hi. Welcome back to Rupture Radio. Hi, Ken. Um, so, Paul, we're recording this at midday on Thursday, the 3rd of March. Um, so rapidly changing situation. By the time this goes out, things could have moved on a bit. But could you give us maybe a, a picture as to where things are at now in Ukraine as we speak? As much as I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's all in the context of the fog of war. I mean, I know that the Financial Times, every time that they list any claim about anything that's happening militarily, they say we, the claims of the Ukrainian and, and Russian military cannot be verified. Um, so everything is through the fog of war. Um, but certainly some things seem to be clear. Um, one is the horror that is being rained down upon the um, people of Ukraine. Um, it, it does seem you know, very definitely to be the case that at this stage now, civilians are being targeted in what amounts to a war crime. Um, this morning, you had the announcement of the first provincial capital being captured by uh, the Russian forces. Still at this stage, you have this apparently 40 kilometer long military, Russian military convoy heading towards Kyiv. Um, other cities also uh, beginning to be completely besieged by the, the Russian forces. Um, so horror in Ukraine. Um, 
already the fleeing of over a million refugees from Ukraine, primarily to uh, the West, into Europe, although a smaller number also fleeing into uh, Russia. Um, and um, I mean, the other thing, again, you know, obviously there's lots of amateur military analysts and so on now. Um, it, 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 but it, it does seem to be the case that the progress of the Russian army um, in seeking, you know, in pursuing this imperialist invasion of Ukraine is slower than they would have expected. Um, and potentially, or certainly what looks like a, a reason for that is the level of resistance in the Ukrainian population, both armed um, resistance, which we support, we stand on the sides of the Ukrainians fighting against um, the Russian invasion, but also unarmed um, resistance has been quite interesting where you have had, I've seen a lot of videos of like, you know, significant numbers of people gathering to try and stop um, the the tanks and so on moving on. And I saw there was, they had built um, bar- barricades. They just, like people had built barricades on the main roads out of like couches and office desks and random things that they could get. Um, and you also saw some videos coming out of like Russian soldiers um, uh, breaking down, crying, and like so, uh, uh, talking to uh, local uh, uh, people. Uh, um, and it does seem like it has not. Now, obviously, it can be fog of war. It can be you're getting one side of the story, but it does definitely seem like this has not gone to plan for Putin, and that the both the opposition locally has been higher than he would expected, and the resistance or the reluctance from within the army, um, within the Russian army. I mean, uh, uh, there's been less of a uh, 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 there's been more opposition within the army than than I think he would have expected as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the propaganda that Putin sold this war on in in Russia and to the Russian army, um, at least a part of it was borrowed from Western imperialism. So the notion that they're going in to be peacekeepers, um, and then another bit was kind of borrowed from the history of Russia in the sense of what's what's known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War, World War II, against the Nazis. So the idea that they were going in for what they call denazification. And that propaganda, which presumably had a big impact or may well have had an impact in terms of the minds of ordinary Russian soldiers who are just young people, 16, 17-year-olds, some of them, then then that that has to touch reality. And the reality is they're meeting people who... um, can speak Russian in, in many cases and are able to communicate uh, with them, um, where they're clearly, you know, an invading force rather than uh, peacekeepers, where they're not at all being welcomed uh, with with open uh, arms, even into majority Russian-speaking uh, cities, that I think that probably is having an impact. Um, and, and then the other thing that is, you know, the, the one bright light in a lot of darkness in this situation is the emergence quite rapidly of what looks like a very substantial anti-war movement in, in Russia. And, you know, it, it isn't the same to go out in Russia and protest against an invasion as it was uh, to protest even here or in America against the war on uh, Iraq. Um, no question in both cases is propaganda and so on against the anti-war uh, movement, but the question of active state repression. Um, so it looks like tens of thousands of people have have protested, but now well over 6,000 people have been arrested, but it hasn't stopped. You know, over a million people have now signed a petition. It seems that 
Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't make the claim that it's a majority in Russian society because I'm sure the propaganda is is very high. Um, but it, at least it looks like a substantial minority um, are involved um, in in the movement um, against the war, which you know takes tremendous courage and I think is an inspiration to all of us in terms of um, to build a, a global anti-war movement. And it's been it's been consistent. So I saw again more videos out uh, last night from protests in Saint Petersburg. Um, uh, it seems like almost daily there's another big protest. I think I, when I and I last saw earlier on in the week it was in protests across 53 cities. Um, so it's it's widespread, uh, um, and it definitely does seem like there is a glimmer of hope there um, that this could massively backfire on Putin and uh, could uh, spur on a, a massive anti-war movement, which could hopefully also become a movement to overthrow Putin himself. You know. Exactly. I mean, I think there is, people want to know, okay, how can this war possibly be, be stopped? Um, and look, in, in, in the West, the Western governments, NATO, the EU, etc., are using this moment, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it, but to push for major militarization. Um, and they're doing so on the basis that, well, they sell to people, well, this is the only way the war can be stopped. Um, but actually, the fact that you have relatively early on, or very early on, relatively strong anti-war movement emerging in Russia means that we can point to another force that is capable of putting pressure on Putin to stop the war, first of all, and secondly, potentially, um, the Putin government going into crisis and the question of the rule of Putin itself being being undermined. And that there are historical parallels for that. For example, the Vietnam War. Obviously, this is a much longer into the Vietnam War, but the Vietnam War was stopped by a combination of the resistance of the Vietnamese people, armed resistance of Vietnamese people being absolutely crucial, but also enormous anti-war sentiment uh, at home, which created real political pressure to bring the troops home. Or, you know, more dramatically, um, the First World War basically began to come to an end and Russia's participation in it ended because of a movement that emerged against uh, the war to overthrow the Tsar and to overthrow the capitalist system, i.e. the Russian uh, Revolution of, of 1917. So the idea that people power um, and working class power can again become, you know, a global force and able to influence what happens on a global scale, that's, I think, a very important thing that socialists have to, have to push for as an alternative to escalation, further militarization, and the danger of all that comes with that in terms of, you know, the potential of this spiraling out of control into an open, hot conflict between the major superpowers in the world, um, all of which are are, are nuclear uh, powers, and there's a certain like a reverse uh, a reversal of like Putin's first big war here. Like when Putin first came to power, uh, one of the it was in, in part of the, his war on Chechnya was an important part of him like consolidating his his base of support, whipping up uh, racist uh, sentiments. Then at that stage, he was backed up by. Uh, um, backed up by Tony Blair, backed up by the West, uh, um, seen as like this great democratic reformer, uh, um, even though he was committing massive war crimes in Chechnya. Uh, um, but there's a certain irony, ironic mirroring of like that the, the thing that consolidated him into power, which was one of these brutal imperialist invasions, could also be one of the things that starts to undermine his his uh, decades long rule. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it definitely is worth remembering the the war in Chechnya. I mean, the number of um, people killed by Russian Russian troops within Chechnya 
was somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people. So, you know, incredible devastation. They, they, the capital city of, of uh, Chechnya, Grozny, was just like basically razed to the ground. And exactly as you point out, I mean, literally Tony Blair rolled out the red carpet for Putin with a state visit while that war was, was going on. Um, so the Western powers were largely okay with that war. It fit into a narrative of um, Islamophobia, war on terror, and so on. And, and they were, they didn't, they primarily didn't really have a problem with it. Um, what's different now, um, I think it is important to say, what's different now is, is not that, you know, Biden or Johnson or whoever, the Western powers, the EU, um, they're not particularly concerned about ordinary people in Ukraine either. That's like a really harsh truth is that Putin doesn't care about the ordinary people, let's say the ordinary people he claims to be going to war for, the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass or in Crimea. Um, but the same applies. The Biden and so on, they're all using them as, as pawns. And so it is important, I think, to see what's happening now and, and to understand what's happening now in the context of, one, you have a real imperialist war by Russia invading a former uh, colony. Um, which is absolutely indefensible. There's no justification for and so on. That's, that's clear on our side in that and clear. But two, that also takes place in the context of growing inter-imperialist tensions and growing inter-imperialist conflict between NATO, US and so on on the one side and Putin on the other um, and Russia's allies like Belarus, for example. And it is in terms of that con- conflict, it's important to say, one, this didn't start just last week. This has been escalating for the last two decades, in effect, and does involve NATO expansion east Eastern Europe, does involve annual exercises on the border of, of Russia, does involve permanently stationed NATO battle groups in multiple Eastern European countries, missile sites in Poland and uh, Romania, for example. Um, and within that inter-imperialist conflict, I think it is important for socialists to say that we're against both sides. We're in favor of the ending of the war and we're in favor of overthrowing the system of capitalism and inter-imperialist competition, which inevitably creates these sort of wars for which ordinary people are the ones who, who lose out and who suffer and, and lose their lives. Go over that a bit more there in terms of the role of NATO. I think that's something we don't really hear about here. Um, like most people have only heard about Ukraine uh, maybe briefly in 2014 and like, but this whole conflict has, in most people's minds, this whole conflict started like two or three weeks ago. Uh, um, uh, uh, whereas there does there is this longer running backstory uh, um, of NATO guaranteeing no further expansion eastwards. Uh, um, but all, uh, yeah, but if you could maybe explain that a bit more as what would happen there, and even just the nature of NATO, because I think a lot of people mm-hmm. like don't what NATO is isn't very clear. I, I you know it's not something that you learn about that much. You know. Yeah. Um. So first of all, before going into that, I think it's important to say that look. None of this is a justification for Putin's invasion. None of this changes our attitude of complete opposition to the invasion and the call for the unconditional withdrawal of of Russian troops from Ukraine. Um, NATO is a supposedly, I mean, the language they use consistently is a defensive military uh, alliance. But in reality, it is, you know, it's a military alliance very much led by uh, the US um, which uh, developed in the context of the Cold War um, to protect, you know, the capitalist world against the supposedly communist world, uh, the Stalinist uh, world, um, and was 
you know, was the vehicle of, of that Cold War uh, in effect. Um, on the Soviet side was the, the Warsaw uh, Pact, which had the various countries which had like, broken with capitalism from my point of view, but certainly didn't have genuinely democratic um, socialist uh, societies. Um, the, you know, the formal justification for NATO uh, disappeared with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and uh, so on. But NATO certainly didn't disappear. And um, as you mentioned, at, at that time when the Berlin Wall fell, um, there's lots of evidence to confirm the fact that a commitment was given to Russia that, okay, like the Berlin Wall is gone, East Germany and West Germany are going to be reunited. Um, in reality, that's going to be a NATO state. Um, but there was a guarantee given that, well, we won't go any further than the borders of East Germany then to become Germany as a whole. Um, instead, since then, what has happened is that NATO in wave after wave of expansion has extended 800 kilometers uh, eastwards up towards uh, Russia's border. Um, linked to that has been these, what I mentioned in terms of permanent NATO battle groups, i.e. soldiers from outside of uh, the states where they are um, being placed in uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, and then missile bases in Romania and Poland. And then these military exercises I mentioned, these, they're called Defender Europe, and they're defending Europe from Russia. That's the exercise. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And it's 30,000 troops participated last year. I think it was last February um, in this exercise, and then naval exercises in the Black Sea uh, as well. Um, and all of that is... Again, without giving any justification for Putin's war, it was about encircling Russia. Um, I, and I like, saw you made the point on before the war broke out, but you made the point on uh, the invasion, not, not war, sorry, before Russia invaded. Uh, um, but you made the point on Virgin Media, uh, the Tonight Show, about um, imagine if Mexico joined a military alliance with Russia and then had 30,000 Russian troops. Uh, marching on on the on the uh, doing exercises on the U.S. border, building uh, missile bases uh, um, along the border, etc. Like the idea that America would like stand that stand by and just allow that to happen is it's ludicrous. That's not to justify America wouldn't be justified in invading uh, uh, Mexico uh, um, or any Latin American country for that matter for such an action. I'm not defending it or anything, but like you can see what is going on there, which is that like. Both Russia and America view this area as theirs, and they're butting heads over um, who 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 gets to control it. You know, and actually, it should be neither of theirs. I mean, neither exactly. neither of these imperialist powers should we, be controlling or uh, this region. You know? We we reject the idea of of spheres of of influence. Um, but what is happening here, um, at one level, is Russia projecting that they want a sphere of influence. The way they oppose that is we want kind of buffer countries between our sphere of influence and the Western. And, and, and the US, which is a declining imperialist power, but still the leading power which is declining, which is a kind of underlining cause of these conflicts and tensions, and will be an underlying cause of potentially significant conflict with China, for example, over uh, Taiwan. Um, but the US imperialism still wants to consider the whole world to be its sphere of influence. And even if you think that the example I gave about Mexico, like in a way that, that isn't a hypothetical, that happened in terms of Cuba. Um, mm -hmm. Cuba installed uh, missiles and the world nearly went to nuclear war 
uh, and over to be clear, the US then, had actually genuinely tried to invade Cuba as well. Like, they, yes. they also had reason to be defensive. Exactly. Cuba broke with capitalism, went into the Soviet Union sphere of, of influence. The US invaded it, repeatedly tried to assassinate its president. And then the Cubans installed missiles and the world nearly went to nuclear war. And ultimately, the Cubans yeah. had to withdraw those uh, missiles. So we've seen this happen. Uh, in, yeah, in I, don't, I don't. I don't remember everybody saying, "Oh, well, it's Cuba's democratic right to have nuclear missile, Russian nuclear missile bases, if they if they wish." Exactly, and that and that is a point. Just it's, it's you know, people present it as like, "Oh, it's just whataboutery to point out the hypocrisy of NATO and so on." But even you know, one of the things that's most irritating and a lot of the discussion about it is this is the first war in Europe since World War II, and they leave out what happened in in Yugoslavia. And to be clear, like the NATO bombardment of Yugoslavia happened in a way that is very similar to the justification of the Russian invasion of uh, of Ukraine. No like pretense of a UN mandate, no pretense of operating within international uh, law, operating on the basis of, okay, defending the rights of the people in uh, Kosovo, targeting TV stations, bombing the Chinese embassy, um, and killing over a thousand uh, civilians within Yugoslavia. You know, that no, none of the, the exact same arguments they're making, like with a basis against the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, also would have gone against uh, their uh, bombardment just in 1999 of uh, Yugoslavia. And so, so far, the response from the US and the EU, um, there's been lots of chest beating and uh, uh, talk of, like, you know, rallying the troops and anybody that uh, criticizes uh, NATO as a traitor and all of that sort of stuff. But actually, they haven't sent in loads of troops. There hasn't been uh, um, all that. The response so far has been things like sanctions, military aid, sending over weapons and all that. And it, it is, um, well, one, sort of what's going on, but also two, what, what should be the response of the left um, in the West to, to that? What should we be saying about uh, um, these sanctions and uh, the sending of military weaponry and all of that over to, to the Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, in a way, it's a good thing that they are more sober than some of the kind of, you know, centrist dads on Twitter who would, you know, send in NATO troops onto the ground or who would try to enforce a no-fly zone, which is really just a nice word for achieving aerial superiority by shooting the Russian planes out of the ground, uh, off out of the, the sky. Because doing those things would likely precipitate an all-out war between NATO and Russia and their nuclear powers. And like it genuinely contains the possibility of, you know, the end of humanity as we know it. So they are being a bit more sober than that. And like, you know, good that, good that they're being a bit more sober in the sense of because we very much don't want a hot war. Um, but at the same time, I think it is important to see their measures that are being taken, their uh, sanctions and their military aid, um, they are an instrument of inter-imperialist conflict. They're an instrument of Western imperialism against Russian imperialism. And that's why they're, they're doing it. Um, for example, the French finance minister described what they're doing as an all-out economic and financial war on Russia. That's how he said it. That's how they, that's how they envisage it. Um, and I think it's important for the left to stand against those measures 
um, on a fundamental level, precisely because they're an instrument of this inter-imperialist conflict. And we're opposed to the Western side in this inter-imperialist conflict, just as we're opposed to the Russian side. And then we stand with the Ukrainian people against the Russian invasion. So that's the, the fund, on a fundamental level, I think that's why we should uh, oppose them. Um, secondly, more practically, we should oppose them because they have a devastating impact on ordinary Russian people who have no responsibility for uh, this war, many of whom are protesting against this war. And to go further than that, I would say that the more these sort of measures are imposed, well, then um, it makes Putin's job of portraying the anti-war movement in Russia as kind of a fifth columnist element, you know, the agents of foreign powers. It makes his job easier in terms of isolating the anti-war movement. And and the third reason I'd say we need to stand against these is because we should open our eyes to what's happening in the West, is there is a, um, a certain shock doctrine taking place of, like in, in Ireland, like in Germany, like across the EU, and taking advantage of the correct solidarity that ordinary people have with Ukraine to drive through a project of militarization, integration into NATO, getting rid of neutrality in Ireland. That was already the project of the capitalist classes across Europe, but now they're going to do it. And so it's important that we don't go along with those things and point out, no, these things lead to escalation. They lead to the thing getting worse. Instead, we need to build uh, an anti-war movement. I also think there's a point that like, I don't, sanctions don't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the sanctions, all they do is uh, create a basis to say, well, we tried it the easy way. So now we have to go up. It, it annoys the Russians and the Putin enough that then he can then justify further escalations. Like, well, they escalated, so we'll have to escalate, et cetera, et cetera. It ratchets it up in that way. But it doesn't actually like achieve anything other than, as you said, like uh, um, immiserating ordinary people. Um, and I, 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 some of this comment, some of the stuff in the news about like, oh, we, we're going to have, we're going to like drive up inflation in Russia and starve them out. It's mm-hmm. like collapse it's, the ruble, like as if that's yeah. a, a great idea to collapse the currency of a nuclear but it's, power. Yeah, exactly. you know? It's using your economic. Mm-hmm. No, we saw it. It's a bit of a weird analogy, maybe. Tanks but tanks. You, yeah, you, exactly. You saw it in Greece that they used their economic power to win for instead of like in in the seventies or whatever. The, the U.S. would if there was a left wing government, the U.S. would send in. Thanks to overthrow it, whereas today the EU was able to just overthrow Syriza or essentially overthrow uh, 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 that that democratic the program will. of Syriza, exactly. Syriza, yeah. yeah, via uh, economic power, and I think it is. Um, I know, but yeah, it it is just further escalation and matching it up. When I, the only hope is that I can see is that anti-war movements on all sides pull them back and de-escalate. Uh, um, uh, uh, the things you know, but maybe, and I, and I think that's what, what's it's important that people get onto the streets that we build a substantial anti-war movement. And um, I do think like a precondition for that to be successful is that it has to be an anti-war movement. Like I've seen those who are in favour of war with Russia talking about that being an anti-war position. You know, I've seen the I think the NATO director of communications or someone had a tweet with like hashtag stop the war when in reality no. Um, they're not in favour of stopping the war, they're in favour of increased militarisation. So we need to build an anti-war movement around the idea of, firstly, opposition to the Russian invasion, Russian troops out of uh, Ukraine, but also, say, in this country, a defence of the basic idea of neutrality, i.e. not participating in military alliances, and in opposition to the expansion of NATO eastwards, calling for the withdrawal of, of NATO troops, and in opposition to the, the 
the kind of drumbeat of war that is very much happening in the in the West at the moment. I want to so talk a bit about that drumbeat of war. Um, I think one of the things we've seen in the last week that really highlighted it was the like the vicious attack uh, um, and propaganda war against like Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, mm-hmm. uh, um, the MEPs who voted in the European Parliament uh, against the motion uh, um, there, which is presented by the media as, oh, it was just a condemnation of Russia, but it had massive uh, uh, terms and conditions of prom- promoting militarization uh, um, promoting further uh, uh, LNG plants um, so that we can import fracked gas and it had all of this stuff in there as well. But So you've seen that, which I can only describe as a witch hunt, uh, um, and you've also seen, which I think like it's it hasn't been talked about much, but I think it is surreal to see the banning of uh, Russia Today or RT and Sputnik and stuff like that. Uh, um, just they're, they're, they're banning from YouTube, banning from uh, social media, banning from TV airways. Like I've no love lost with with, with these uh, companies, obviously any more than I, you know, uh, um, would would uh, 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 care for RTE or BBC or uh, uh, you know. Uh, um, but it is. It does seem to me very like beating of the war drums, uh, um, uh, uh, whipping up that kind of attitudes. Um, but I don't know what what did you make of it all yourself? Yes, I mean I think. I think we're now in a time of very substantial wartime propaganda. Um, and it's interesting because in a way, it's maybe the first war where the wartime, first war in involving, sorry, in, in the West, where like the West is highly invested in it in a way that it's kind of more invested in than its support for Saudi Arabia in terms of the, inv- the invasion and the massacre of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people in Yemen or the Israeli war on the Palestinian people. But in a way, it's the first kind of European war, quote unquote, um, whereby the propaganda is coming in into our pockets. Do you know what I mean? In our in our phones, just like it's incessant, nonstop, um, and it is very loud. Uh, and I think so. I think one thing. I think w- what happened in terms of the kind of headlines uh, attacking Claire Daly and Mick Wallace for the way it was posed in multiple stories for opposing um, a resolution condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I thought that was absolutely scandalous and is just out and out wartime propaganda with the purpose being to demonize the so-called enemy within, to put pressure on the left, those who are anti-war, anti-NATO, basically to shut up, um, to, you know, just by demonizing people so that there isn't a critical voice and they can push through their actual uh, agenda. Um, and look, I, I I don't share the same political views as Claire Daly and Mick Wallace when it comes to an analysis of the world, when it comes to an analysis of Russia's role in it, for example, in relation to Syria. I'd have very substantial um, differences. Um, but if you read their explanation for why they voted against the EU resolution, I think it's a pretty good explanation. Um, I think that they were absolutely right to oppose the EU resolution. The Portuguese Communist Party was right to oppose it. I think the Greek Communist Party was right to oppose it. I think Miguel Urban Crespo from the Anti-Capitalistas in the Spanish state was absolutely right to oppose it. Um, and people should go and look what's actually in the motion. I mean, just very briefly, I have it here in front of me. It, it calls for all member states to increase defence uh, spending. It calls for strengthening the European pillar within NATO. Um, it calls for um, uh, the activation of NATO response forces and their partial 
deployment, calls for troop deployments from NATO uh, allies, calls for strengthening the eastern flank. Like you said, it calls for investment in LNG terminals. I mean, literally one day on Tuesday, uh, the Green MEP, Grace O'Sullivan, released a statement saying, oh, I'm a longtime peace activist, etc., but I felt I had to vote for this thing, calling for increased LNG investment. And the next day on Wednesday, Nessa Horrigan, a Green TD, introduced a bill in the Dáil to stop any further investment in uh, fossil uh, fuels. It's completely hypocritical. If you're serious against these positions, well, then you would have you know, opposed this pro-NATO, pro-war resolution in reality, pro-LNG resolution, and instead issued a statement or put your, forward your own resolution saying, very clearly we condemn um, the, the invasion of, of Ukraine. And, but I think it's done for a purpose. And I, I, I similarly thought, I mean, I don't think it's been commented on much, but I, I do think that the banning of Sputnik and RT, it's like, again, I'm, I'm no fan of them. I think, you know, the propaganda is generally more blatant than in the um, Western outlets. Um, well, it's not more blatant than Fox News. That's or true. Like, or GB News. GB or, that's news true. Or it's, like in, that. it's, in, it's, in, it's in that ballpark. Um, but, you know, because it's funny, because like side by side, you have all these stories correctly condemning the censorship that's taking place in Russia. And then stories reporting fo- favorably on like, oh, we've kicked them off the airwaves. I saw one tweet, which is like, oh, now we just get to listen to our own lies, our own wartime propaganda. We don't get to look at the other wartime um, proper propaganda. So I, I think it was all, you know, very concerning. And it's, it's, it's really important, I think, that the left takes a stand against it, rejects the equation of being anti-war, anti-NATO, pro-neutrality as being in some way pro-Putin. And um, because that's what's being attempted has been done. For example, Mick Barry came down to vote uh, last night on our amendment, where we had an amendment to try and stress all these points. And we couldn't even get 10 people to stand up to call a vote because Sinn Féin wouldn't uh, support it. Um, so it was people for profit and solidarity, and it was Joan Collins, Thomas Pringle, and um, Michael McNamara interested in it. Catherine Connolly was in the chair, so she couldn't stand. I, I, I presume she would have. Um, but when Mick Barry came down, having been at a meeting, they were all there was like people saying, "Oh, you're support Putin." There was people shouting at him. You know what I mean? It was like a wartime atmosphere with like Mick as the agent of Russia. You know, Mick was like, "Oh," because they were they were saying. You know, he came late or whatever. He was like rushing in the door because he was doing a meet. He's like, oh, I did it. was doing a meeting about Ukraine. He was like, which side are you on? You're on Putin's side. All that kind of stuff, you know? It's it's really scandalous and we have to take a stand against it. And like, so the, that amendment, so t- let's just talk about the government motion and the People for Profit amendment. Because um, instantly, People for Profit were the only ones to move any sort of amendment to it. Yeah. Um, and like, it is shocking in some ways on the surface of it that like Sinn Féin, like, didn't didn't even allow it to be voted, uh, voted against it, you know, because uh, um, it's in a sense it's a quite a mild amendment in some ways, you know what I mean? Uh, um, I I won't read it all out, but it basically calls for humanitarian aid and for uh, Ireland to offer refuge to all people fleeing war, uh, supports the anti-war movements in Russia, uh, um, calls for further anti-war movements, um, and calls presumably this is what they objected to. I don't know. But it, it calls on NATO to de-escalate its military presence uh, and withdraw ballot, battle groups and missiles from 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 the region, uh, um, and it it further reiterates Ireland's uh, um, military that Ireland is a military neutral state that won't join NATO. So it was it was fairly all things that Sinn Fein would say or should say or would have in the past said that they'd support. Uh, um, but I presume their argument against it is that uh, 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 and that that criticism or that call on NATO. To uh, um, withdraw their battle groups and their missiles 
from it? Um, or if you have any insight as to what they're thinking of or, or what was the thinking of putting that amendment in, I suppose? Well, it was, was to respond to what was a very one-sided motion, which therefore could not be supported, um, which simply, like, it, it was much milder language than the resolution that was put in the European Parliament. There wasn't mention of sanctions, there wasn't mention of military aid, and so on. But it was a very one-sided motion which simply disappeared the question, for example, of the democratic rights of ethnic Russians and, and Russian speakers within uh, Russia, including in Donbass and Crimea, and which disappeared entirely the existence of NATO, the existence of a history of, of this, and, and so on. So that, that was precisely why we put our amendment to register a different uh, position uh, to that. Um, as to why Sinn Féin didn't support it, I mean, I think the answer is quite simple, is that under the pressure of all the propaganda, of their need to present themselves as you know responsible future partners in, go- in a capitalist government in Ireland, um, which would continue its subservient position to US imperialism, would continue presumably the use of the US military by um, of Shannon Airport, um, they just absolutely flinched from putting what is their formal uh, position. Um, and, and the truth is that, uh, I mean, on, on the one hand, in fairness to them, they're not beating the war drums in the sense of like, Neil Richmond in the doll the other day was saying, we need to send javelin missiles and stuff like, you know what I mean? Really like talking things up in the way that Fine Gael is very openly using this to abandon any pretense of uh, neutrality. Um, I'm, sure, at the same I'm, I'm sure he'll be the first to sign it, up and he, go over and exactly. fight. <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, Sinn Féin is kind of going along with um, the Western side in this and is not like correct to point 100% solidarity to Ukrainian people, 100% we agree with that. Um, but they're not pointing out the inter-imperialist tensions and conflicts, which is a part of, of this at all. Um, and I think that's very unfortunate. Um, I saw as well, like some of the most vicious attacks um, on the left and on uh, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace and, and all that have actually, obviously some Fine Gaelers, but also the Labour Party and AK-47 himself, Alan, Alan, Alan Kelly, uh, um, was out like viciously in the doll using his leader's questions time to like have a pop off of Claire and Mick and, and all that. But what's been, what, could you tell us a bit more about, about that maybe? Yeah, I mean, they're very, very, very pro-NATO in this and are very much part of going after the left, portraying the left as being pro-Putin. Um, so yeah, he used his leader's questions. I mean, it wasn't the only thing he said in his leader's questions, but during leader's questions, he he said that Claire Daly and Mick Wallace had, hadn't opposed, had opposed this resolution condemning the Russian invasion without giving all the other stuff that's, that's in it. Um, and he said, oh, they've disgraced their mandate and they don't speak um, for the Irish people. I thought it was really dirty attack um, when they're not present in the doll to defend themselves. Um, and hoping that it'd be picked up by the media and that it would be used to do damage, not just to Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, but to the left. Um, I think that's clearly what that's about. Um, so, I mean, from my point of view, certainly that was an additional reason not to shed any tears for Alan Kelly getting the, the boot a number of hours uh, later. Yeah, actually, yeah. Maybe on a, on a end, on, end on the good news about the cat being saved from the tree. 
Um, no, and then the good news is, what, what is that all about? Uh, like, that took me by surprise. It was just like, at four or five o'clock yesterday, I started seeing tweets, people saying Alan Kelly was going to go. Um, uh, uh, what, well, one, have you any insight as to what it's about? And two, I saw that you've taken a bit of heat as well for um, uh, uh, saying good riddance uh, um, and saying that he'd be remembered for water charges or whatever. What, what's your, uh, what is your parting words to um, Alan Kelly? Well, the first thing is I think I've done a, a very small amount to try and prevent World War III by distracting some of the kind of Fine Gael supporting centrists and Labour supporting centrist dads from their, their call for open, hot conflict with Russia by distracting them um, by open getting the them to focus front. on open <laughs> the second front by getting them to attack me about um, not being very nice about Alan Kelly on his way out the door. Um, I No, I have no idea um, what it's about, only to say... I think the idea that it's just about their poll ratings and so on is not credible. The guy's been in power for two years as Labour leader. They had one by-election in the course of that, which they won. Uh, so he hasn't been through one election yet. So I, I think, I suspect, and given the speed of it and so on, that there's something, there's much more in the story about um, something, uh, cultural issues Um and the question of like staffing issues. Uh, it seems to be a big conflict over the appointment of a staff. Um, I know Marie Sherlock, who's a Labour senator, was on Morning Ireland this morning and was asked about this. And she's like, oh, I won't be talking about internal Labour issues. But like she was on the radio to talk about <laughs> the internal matter of the Labour Party leader being uh, ousted. Um, but they'll clearly try to keep that under wraps. We'll see whether that's successful. Um, but I mean, I think people in general won't shed any tears. I mean, Alan Kelly was minister will be forever associated with the enforcement of the water charges. He got beaten by a mass movement on the streets, 73% refusing to pay. He was also the minister for housing in the government that built the fewest number of public houses for decades and decades. Also the minister in the government which invited in the REITs and the vulture funds with tax breaks and so on, so contributed to the crisis that we're now in. Um, Part of the political reason for Labour to ditch him is the idea of always oh, too tainted by the that government of Fine Gael Labour, um, and there's a certain logic to that. Um, but I think the problem is much more fundamental for the Labour Party than that. Mm-hmm. In the sense that in the past, Labour Party was always able to kind of rhetorically campaign on the left when in opposition, go into government, betray their voters, return to opposition, campaign more from the left again, rebuild support, betray their voters again, and do it over and over. Things are fundamentally different now um, because after the betrayal and the aftermath of the government that ended in 2016, um, a very much an austerity government, there were places for working class voters uh, and that's like working class broadly conceived. There were other places politically for people to go, in particular Sinn Féin, but to a lesser extent people before profit and the radical left. And that means there's just no reason for people to go back to them, which is why Alan Kelly tried to carve out a unique position as kind of leader of the opposition to the opposition, spending more time emphasizing how credible, how responsible they were, attacking the, the left. But that didn't work. And I, I, I don't really see there is a route back to relevancy and substantial uh, support for the Labour Party because of the changes in, um, in the general political landscape. So that's good news. <laughs> yeah okay we'll, we'll end we'll end, we'll end on that and the cat was rescued from the tree as well for those that were concerned um okay so thanks again paul for joining us thanks for people for listening um to rupture radio um and i would encourage you all if you haven't already to take out um to join us and support us on patreon 
uh, um, to support us producing these episodes. And hopefully we, we have plans for more interviews and more series, more in-depth uh, um, discussions, as well as getting back to some panel shows and hopefully a, a, a live in-person event for our patron supporters as well. So please do support us on patreon.com forward slash rupture radio and keep sharing uh, uh, and spreading the word about this uh, podcast. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye.